0: Uh, once we identify it, how do we mediate it, right? Because we don't want to live with that, right? And and ultimately, how do we get to a space where when we have conversations about race, there's little or no anxiety?
1: Hey y'all, Andre DeMille here, your favorite speaker and trainer, author of Is It Racism? How to Heal the Human Divide and Bunny Seeds. Together, we'll explore stories and we'll hear from folks of different backgrounds, gender, ethnicities, and sexualities. One story at a time, we can all help heal the human divide. Welcome to the show. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of The Wake Up Stories. Um, you are going to love today's episode. So we have with us today is Dr. Hoskins, and he was introduced to me through a mutual friend um, because you got to love the internet. I've, I've known Tara Cooper. She's been on the show before, but she connected us on the internet, uh, you know, we slid into each other's DMs <laughs> and we, I, I had the privilege of having an amazing conversation with him a few months ago um, and then was able to dive into his book. And so I'm just going to jump right into it. He is the author of My Black is Exhausted, Forever in Pursuit of a Racist-Free World Where Hashtags Don't Exist. So Dr. Hodgkins is a highly published scholar, critical race pedagogy, movie critique, co-creator of How to Reverse Racism training, and also author of Becoming Unexhausted, an interactive journal for moving beyond racism. He helps people cope and overcome racial exhaustion. He's a professor in the higher education, very sought after public speaker, and you guys can find some of his dope art on exhausted race art. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Hoskins. How are you? I'm doing all right.
0: How you doing?
1: I am well. I am well. It is a beautiful winter day. We actually woke up to a little bit of snow here in Utah, so that's great. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so we had an inch and a half of snow in Lubbock and they closed the city down.
1: Oh, I believe it. I believe. But I never judge my Southern states because they're not used to, the, like, they don't have the equipment to keep the roads clear. People freak out, don't know how to drive. Is it still, Uh, they, they snatch all the milk and bread off the shelves?
0: <laughs> oh, it, it didn't come to that. Okay. But it was, you know, any, any stoppage is good. They, they even closed the university down. So I was surprised that it happened.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That Well, and I guess... It probably makes it easier now that everything's more virtual anyway. So. Right. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. It is such an honor and a privilege to have you. Um, And I know you recently were doing something with our neighbor at um, the Weber State right here in Ogden. So that's such a coincidence. I was like, oh, he's coming on my show in a few weeks. So, yeah, doing some great work. Um, Well, let's just jump right into it. So, Dr. Hoskins, tell us your story. Tell us, you know, how you came to this. My Black is Exhausted, how the book came about and just, you know, what led up to all of it.
0: Right. And so I'll go I'll go forward to go backward. Sure. So I was just at Weber, just at Weber State. Uh, did a uh, they were the third spot on my book
1: tour. Okay.
0: And so I have. Let me see. This month I got um, I got a uh, Texas Western University, and then in March I got a uh, University of Idaho, and then I got Texas A and M at Galveston. Right. And so to go, I got a uh, twenty shows between. We started at University of Missouri last year, but so between last December and this December, I'll do twenty different spots. Nice. Right. And so. The purpose of the book tour is to give, to have a discussion about how do we identify racial exhaustion? Uh, once we identify it, uh, how do we mediate it, right? Because we don't want to live with that, right? And, and ultimately, how do we get to a space where when we have conversations about race, there's little or no anxiety,
1: mm, right? Yes.
0: And so but and so the book tour has been enlightening. You know, I've had people cry. I've had uh, people uh, challenge, right? Descent, I love dissents. Right. And so, but in, in creating the book, that was not my intent. Right. So I, I didn't, because I just uh, went up for tenure at a uh, Texas Tech in Lubbock, I really didn't have time to write a book. Okay. I, I really didn't. And I didn't plan to write one either. Right. <laughs> and so I watched, it goes back to May 25th, 2020. And so I watched George Floyd perish on video mm-hmm. and it just, I felt like something broke inside of me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was just, I was just filled with anger. Right. And so I, I was just trying to make sense of what I do with this anger. Like, how, how do I get rid of it? Because I was you know, I was angry when Tamir Rice died. Uh, I was angry when uh, Brianna Taylor died, you know, Sandra Bland, like just a list of black people who were right. who were murdered. Right. And so but this watching it happen, the, the the casualness of the person who killed him, it just did something to me. Right. And so I was like, I, I need to start journaling because I'm not really a big journaling person. I write for a living. So I don't have time to journal. Right. <laughs> okay. but, I, but I was like, I got to start journaling. And the more that I journaled over 90 days. Right. I was like, you need to now that you got this journaling in place, you need to send this out to people that you trust. Right. So they can tell you how you feel from their perspective, right? And so I had the conversation with, and I notated them down, 17 white friends or colleagues, right, and so we had conversations about how to be a, a, an ally as a white person, about white fragility, about um, white aloofness, about about all these things that, what what does it mean to be white? How do I get engaged? And so one, on one conversation, a person asked me, well, how are you doing? And I said, my black is exhausted. Ooh. And then we went to this conversation about the ways that it is, right? And so ultimately, that ends up being the title of the book. Mm-hmm. And so I remember my son, Osiris, asking me, Daddy, what's your greatest fear? And I said, to become a hashtag. Because mm-hmm. I associate my name with a hashtag. If I see a black person's name with a hashtag on Twitter, I'm like, did they die? That's the first thing I think about, right, where they murdered. And so those things all coalesced into person saying, you need to do something. You, you may want to consider writing a book. And I was like, no, I don't want to have to go. I don't want to have to to find a literary agent. I want to do all that. But the more I typed, I just, you know, I just started typing. And so I equate everything to hip hop culture. Right. And so even in when I listen to an album, I think about the song sequencing. um, What music, what message does it convey? How do they transition? How does everything go well together? And so when writing the book, there, there are Uh, 16 chapters and so it ties into the final chapter is beyond racism Mm -hmm. and so i want to i was thinking about you know this when i met john lewis so john lewis came to university of utah man i want to say two years ago maybe two or three years and so we flew in and met him personally got my daughter to take a picture with him and i thought to myself he spent his whole life fighting racism
1: right
0: Like, like he could have been a pilot he could have been an ice cream man he could have been anything right but he spent his whole life fighting against a racism that's still here after he died. Mm. And I started thinking, was he, did he waste his life? And so part of my frustration was I don't want to live in a world that's racist any longer. I don't, I don't want to waste my time trying to fight something. I'm going to be dead and still going to be here impacting my great grandkids. Right. right. And so the final chapter of the book, it deals with how do we move beyond racism? Right. And so it, it is really a, a story. It's filled with stories, right? right And so because I'm a ner- I'm a nerd and I realize my nerd don't always translate well. And so I use movies and music as a way to map my emotions throughout life. And so the book is really a, a story that ties in my experiences uh, with racism, my family's experiences, my children, and how it is connected to memories again of music and film and then how we how we identified that we were experiencing racism and how we navigated it essentially.
1: right. I love it. I mean, as as I was reading, it was nice to see myself in the work as a black woman. Um, And I don't think I realized how exhausted my black was until I started going through it. And you brought up so many fantastic points. I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Oh, I never thought about that. Oh, that's why I feel about this. You know, even the, um, I remember stopping myself when I was reading the section on the, the Spider-Man multiverse. And, you know, because like everybody else here, and I have as a mom of, you know, f- um, I raised five black boys, but I, four of mine, the oldest was my ne- um, my nephew. I say was because he's 19 and moved out now. Um, but, you know, raising four black boys in this country, and I was excited. I'm like, like, like you kind of lead into it. You know, I'm like, Finally there's a you know we have some representation of a of a black superhero and he's you know and he's a teenage boy and and there's hip hop culture infused throughout the film and but I, here I am still with my blinders on to all the little subtle uh, anti black Things that are put into the film, how how you know everyone can be a superhero, how he's going to school on the other side of the tracks, how there's no other black girls in the film, he doesn't even have a crush on another black girl, right? Like all those little anti-blacks nuggets that were planted in it, I just thought was a beautiful way. And throughout the whole book, as you as you referred back to music and movies. to show the point and prove, you know, support your your feeling on that story of how your black is exhausted. I thought was just absolutely beautiful and, and done in a way that hasn't been done before. Um, and I really feel that it will heavily impact upcoming generations um, because you know kids are all into pop culture and um, you know they grew up watching movies and listening to music and and especially. Uh, when it comes to black culture, like my children may not have grown up with the same music and movies that you and I did, but they still know it because I still listen to the same music and I still play the same movies. And so I love how you, you know, in such a beautifully artistic way, we're able to take that pop culture to support your feelings on where and how your black is exhausted. And I also feel like it's it's beautifully done because it breaks down the barriers instead of pointing the finger at, you know, white people who get so easily offended when this is behind us. race, racism doesn't exist anymore. You know, um, this is a way for them to see it without them feeling like a victim, you know, or shaming or, um, I, you know, so many people don't want to hear about critical race theory right now because they don't want their kids to feel guilty for being white. And what you do is eliminate that piece. Like you can't feel guilty for being white. You're just it's like, look, it's right here. This is what it is. This isn't pointing a finger at one or the other. It just is. And I love that. I thought, I thought you did that in such a beautiful way. Thank you. Um, so some of, some of the other things that I loved was the doll. Um, and I know you want to share a little bit from chapter two with us, but that doll, Blacker Than Me, tell us a little bit about that. Um, for those who haven't read your book yet and those who have, like, explain a little bit about how the doll h- impacted you so heavily.
0: Right, and so dolls are something that I I admire, right? So I always think about what what made the doll? I mean, who made the doll? What was the catalyst for them making it? What was the purpose and the meaning of it? So like dolls are like art, just in steel form to me, right? And so... Blacker than me was acquired when I worked at the Department of Tourism in the 90s. I want to say like 1997 or 1998. And so we had a, a rummage sale there and persons brought all of their belongings and essentially sold them to each other. And so I really didn't want to go. I was, you know, I'm an introvert. And so it was difficult for me to just interact with people. And so I saw as I was looking through the this, this stuff, I saw this little, these little barrettes. <laughs> under this pile of socks and so i dug through the socks and i was like oh my goodness it's a black doll i want to buy her and so i looked at the, i was looking for a tag i was looking for the tag and i saw it, it was only one dollar mm-hmm. and so i go up to the cash register and i'm like hey uh is this doll one dollar and then the lady was like uh yeah if that's too much you could just have her for for free
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i was like what I was like, "Nah, I it takes $20. I'm buying for $20. So I was mad I had attitude, <laughs> took her with me and walked off, right? Yeah. And so I was, I was showing her to people that I knew, friends, you know, family members. And so one night I went to my grandma's, and so Maddie Mitchell Sango. And so I uh, said, hey, I, I walked over there, and she was like, who is that? Who do you got with you? And I was like, oh, I got this doll. I want to show it to you. So she's like, get in this house. And so I noticed, I really didn't notice, but she noticed in looking at the doll that she doesn't have a mouth. So she has two white dots for her eyes and one red dot for her nose, and then there's no mouth present. And then for her, her hands are tied together, right? And so my grandmother was like, if you're going to keep this doll, you need to be the voice for her, right? And for Black women when they need it, right? Because Black women don't need to speak for them. But when <laughs> they need you to, yeah. you need to speak, right? Yeah. And then because her hands are tied, you need to fight for her, Right. When needed, because, again, black women don't need you to fight for them. But when they need you to fight, you better be fighting. Right. And so that just shaped after after she told me that I stopped showing other people the doll because I didn't get her permission to show her. Right. And so that that doll just it it impacted me Uh, in a major way. I I have another doll that a person sent to me. That is uh, about three feet tall, three or four feet tall, mm-hmm. and, and he's sitting on my bookshelf, right. And so when people come in and ask about him, I'm like, he's the manifestation of the response of my ancestors. And so if you got if you got any negative meanings when you walk through this threshold of this door, you're going to get retaliation, right? Because it's watching over me. Right. And so I take I take Black Doll serious. I think she she may be 50 years old. I've I, I've inquired about it. I've never seen another doll like her. And so there's not a tag that says you know made by Hasbro or, or right. you know, whoever made dolls. So I don't know if it was a person that made her or she was part of Ser- a doll series, like I really don't know. But to this day, you know, I, I took her for a photo shoot uh, on my bookshelf <laughs> in preparation of the book release. And so, you know, I, we have conversations often because, mm-hmm. you know, I want to make sure that I'm living right and exact and that in my walking in, in my Black maleness, that I don't silence or subjugate Black women. Right? And so it's, it's just It's a conscious. I'm conscious of who I am and uh, how my privileges can uh, sometimes take away from from other groups, specifically black women.
1: Um, And I love that you recognize that even as a black man yourself, because um, I mean, we are even even statistically speaking, black women still make less than any other sex or race across the board, you know, Um, and you know, our babies die at a rate twice that of white babies in America. And, you know, we could go on and on about some of those things. But what I loved was the transgenerational connection between you and your grandmother and um, how she pointed out the positiveness for you to protect and, you know, be like create this sacred space for Blacker Than Me Um, because it could have gone another way, right? It could have also been, Look at what they've done to us. You know, she, they didn't even give her a mouth because they want to silence. They didn't. They stitched her hands. It could have been a negative, which is also all partly true, right? It could have been a very negative thing. But I love how your grandma pointed out um, who she is, and and how we can make that better, right? How we can really help to heal that human divide. And I just, as a, as a young black girl growing up in America, I wish that I could have found a little black doll, you know, in a, in a thrift store or even in the grocery store in Walmart or, you know, the toy section, we didn't have dolls that looked like me. You know, those, those very expensive American girl dolls. There's no black American girl doll that looked like me growing up or even the different shades of brown. You know, my sister is red with freckles and I'm brown with black hair and we didn't have dolls that look like us. You know, those things didn't exist. Um, which also plays to your psyche growing up, you know, that, Anyway, that's another podcast show. <laughs> but I was really moved by um, the power that, the, that she manifested in your life, that the strength your grandma took from it, and how you have created this secret space for her moving forward. Because I feel when we share these stories, it helps people to realize why black folks are exhausted, You know, it's that deep rooted history and pain behind it that still persists, That's still here. Like you said, you found that doll in the nineties, you know, it wasn't in the sixties or seventies or fifties or so. And even when she's made, like you said, to guess that she's approximately 50 years old, that's still not that long ago. So somebody physically made an oppressive representation of a black woman approximately 50 or so years ago. Um, That's very telling. It's very telling. And the more that we can talk about it and normalize it and, and become protectors and healers, like your grandmother suggested, the more we can you know, build a better world. So I appreciate you sharing that one. Um, so I know that you want to share something from your book in chapter two. Let's jump into that.
0: I do. And so again, you had mentioned the Miles Morales, right? So into the spider <laughs> verse, right? And uh, how impactful. I'm surprised at how many people have said to me, You ruined that movie for me in jest, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That like I didn't I didn't see it because I don't have I don't have the lens for seeing it. Right. And so I, I do want to share this this part of it because it expounds upon the the brief that you offered. And it reads as such. Miles Morales is the best Spider-Man ever. This particular iteration of the Spider-Man movie, the ethnic version, is complete with suspense, action, and anti-black sentiment, which speaks to my being completely unsurprised at it being so notorious. The only thing standing between the city and oblivion is me. There's only one Spider-Man and you're looking at him, are the words of Peter Parker, as spoken during the introduction of the film. This declaration reinforces viewer beliefs that only he can be and is the hero. I despise this notion. The movie features Miles Morales, the first black and Latinx Spider-Man who, unlike his white predecessor, is not the only hero. And at the end of the film, he is distinctly told, anyone can wear the mask. You can wear the mask. Translation, even after stopping the multiverse from collapsing, he is not only not the hero, but his triumph is reduced to a mere something that anyone can achieve, the caucasity. The story's anti-black narratives are layered. First, Miles comes from a lower middle class background, but is brilliant enough to test his way into Brooklyn Visions Academy, which is on the other side of town, and his budding love interest, Gwen, is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl. Second, as it pertains to the presence of a young black woman, there's not a single character who fits the category, not even a secondary one. What bothered me most about the movie is how nefarious the expectations of whiteness can be overwhelming, almost to the point where the clear hero Miles completely doubts his ability to save the day. Save the Spider-Verse. Fourth, he is clumsy, unassured, and is without even a modicum of confidence. Fifth, none of the alternate Spider-Man believe he is capable of being a leader, devising a plan of intervention, or even worthy of completing the mission. Ultimately, Miles destroys the Collider, returns the Spider-Team, defeats Kim Penn in a fisticuffs battle, and even makes a fan of his father for the new Spider-Man. Miles concludes by making the final anti-black claim of the film, anyone can wear the mask. You can wear the mask. If you didn't know that before, I hope you do now. I'm Spider-Man, but I'm not the only one. Not by a long shot. This realization was anticlimactic. When there's finally a Spider-Man who is Black and Latinx, he is relegated to sharing the responsibility and the glory of protecting his city. While in every other Spider-Verse, there's a single Spider-Hero. In the current timeline, we can all be the hero, which is untrue. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Wake Up Stories podcast. Join us next time for part two of this
1: interview.